I'm Michael Lilienthal, and this is my guest Ethan Bartlett, and you're listening to Michael and Ethan in a room with Scotch. I don't know about this, like, perky DJ, morning DJ energy <laughs> that you're that you're bringing, and, like, I think people are going to be confused because you didn't start the podcast the exact way that we always start the podcast, so they're going to think this is, like, a Patreon promo or something. Yeah, but here's the trick. Here's the key, gentle listener. If you if you go back and listen to the first episode in this set of two, and then you immediately follow it up with this one, part two, there will be a link between them. I mean, yeah, because like we put the link on the website to get from part one to part two. So yeah, that's 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 there too. Um, oh, is that not what you is that not what you meant or? It's fine. It's fine. Just trample on my dreams. It's I mean, fine. yet again, like, really should be used to it by, by this point. I, I know. I should be. I have to hope. I have to hope that one day, one day you won't hurt me. <laughs> <laughs> we are drinking on this episode. Ben Riach, the 12 Speyside Single Malt Scotch Whiskey, three cask matured. And Ethan, while we pour our drinks, would you call your wife and have her read the rules one last time? Wait, is she going to... Wait. Wife? You remember when I told you to get, like, Kevlar body armor? Why don't you put that on and then come and read the rules? You, Yeah, I know, I know you thought it was a weird request at the time, but you're apparently going to thank me. Ethan, you don't need to share all of that personal information with our listeners. <laughs> don't you shame me. <laughs> anyway. I wouldn't dream of it. Rule one. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two. No one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule 3. Ethan must never say the phrase, first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule 4. Michael must never say the words, vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule 5. If anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. Rule number 6. The wives are entitled to one glass of scotch or some equivalent beverage. Rule number 7. If four scotch-centric episodes pass with no losses, then everyone loses. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle Gentle listener. Thank you. Thank you, Karen. She's now, uh... Look, I am. She's now, uh, like, barrel rolled out of... I don't think that's the right... She's done a she, lot of cool flips to get barrel, out of the isn't room. That like a barrel roll is like a, what an airplane does. Yeah, I know. That's why I immediately said 
You know, you know what? I haven't had enough to drink to deal with this. Mm-hmm. Skunk. Flank. <laughs> so we are uh, continuing to discuss the book The Fisherman by Chigozi Obioma. And we're going to talk about it like the uh, animals that we are. Yeah. Um, I'd, I'd make a Merry Christmas with... of Filthy Animals joke, but yeah. let's, we're no longer discussing that book. Yep. I'm trying to think of like a, a cool morning radio show energy, like animal nicknames here, like... Oh uh, yeah, You're it's. Here with. I mean, you could just go to the beginning of any chapter. The, which of course, I'm not Python and and the, the locusts. Yeah, <laughs> the search actually, dog. Actually, I like I like the idea of one of us just being the locusts. The locusts. Like, how would how would a you know swarm of. <laughs> 700 locusts even control a human suit that's ridiculous what are you talking (laughs) of course oh yeah no that your 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 accusation is is totally absurd that any of us would be a swarm of locusts in a human suit (laughs) um well swarm of locusts is one creature in dungeons and dragons so um, wow that's a thing well yeah i mean what one what kind of nerd even like knows that? What kind of nerd know. even plays D anD D? Probably a super nerdy nerd. What uh? What level of, those... of creature is it? Is it considered? I think it's like probably a half CR. Yeah, like, maybe a quarter. You just burn that away with one good fireball, really. Pretty much, pretty much. But it's like resistant to bludgeoning and slashing and piercing damage. So I like... suppose it would be. I mean, that's why you have to have a wizard. Exactly. Party has yep. to have Only magic. Only magic will will do the trick. Um, anyway, but this is not only, the Dungeons and Dragons. Only nerds podcast. know about Dungeons and Dragons. That's right. Only nerds. Not anyone who has a Netflix subscription. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, I'm just continuing the morning radio DJ energy, really, because I feel like they were all bullies in the '80s. Yeah, all all uh, all the morning DJs were um, '80s bullies. Yeah, you know, I mean, because they're all that's jocks. A, that's I don't a know. statement that uh, I can stand behind. Sure. Um, anyway, now, Ethan. Sorry, just one last thing about the morning DJ yep. thing. My energy about people who are perky in the morning might come off as negative, but I literally. <laughs> Today was a beautiful day where I live, and I lit- it was bright and sunny, and I li- literally looked out the window and was like, I hate days like this. It's like, calm down. <laughs> so, uh, you picked the wrong person yep. to be a morning DJ at. Or the right person, <laughs> depending on your goals. Or the right person, yeah. yeah. You didn't know what I was going for. Oh, I do know. It was um, to make me suffer, as always. Ah. You know me so well. Um, Dang it. And that had big morning DJ energy, that little exchange. (laughs) 
I forced you into being a morning DJ. Good job. With your words. With your prophecies. Good job. Good job. Pro- words and prophecies. I make you, uh, fashion you according to my will. Uh, yeah. Good job. Good job, me. Um, Ethan, why so many animals? Uh, Michael, I believe I asked you that. At least more or no, less. No, you didn't. Well, what I asked you was... There were a lot of animals, and I'm saying why. No, I, I worded the question very specifically. Oh, which okay. is that, are we all just animals? Oh, okay. Alright, so yeah, that's a different question. Um, now, obviously, so, you know, you've all read the book at this point, but yes. so we don't have to point it out. But obviously I'm referring to the fact that almost every chapter begins with um, a statement like chapter three, the eagle, father was mm-hmm. an eagle. Right. Uh, not every single chapter has an animal, uh, but almost no. all of them do, and the others, by and large, have some kind of personification. Chapter two, I think, personifies the river. Um, and, you know, chapter one says we were fishermen, but I think most of the others are uh, uh, comparing one or more characters to some animal. Yes. Um, most of them. Most of them are, are animals. There are a few that aren't. Um, the first chapter is the fisherman. The second chapter is the river. Um, there's, um, chapter five is the metamorphosis, right? um, which that kind of keys into this idea here about, um, all the animals, I think. It's also because as as much as I brought up Kafka out of left field, you know, a couple times last episode, Mm -hmm. it's an interesting, like potential Kafka reference. I don't know if that's where you were going Uh, with us or not. Partially. I think it is partially a uh kafka reference also possibly partially an ovid reference oh sure of course um which is where i'm primarily going with this that um all these people as animals really get some of that you know we talked about the 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 idea of the stories behind everything the uh um you know, the biblical references, the legends, you know, myths as well, um, such as Ovid's Metamorphoses. Yeah. Um, that's a... And, yeah. That's a, just an interesting, uh, you know, we we obviously keyed in, like, like you just said, to a lot of the biblical stuff um, mm-hmm. last episode, but the more that I think about it, just as you're saying this, the more that there is, like, a lot of Greek especially Greek tragic elements um, mm-hmm. going on. Even, like, some of the stuff about, like, the incest, like, that being part of the the story, um, like, mm. coming up a couple times, like, uh, certainly not only in Greek mythology, but that does come up um, in a pretty key way, mm-hmm. including in Ovid's uh, Metamorphoses. Mm. I don't know if you had more to that thought. That I not you specifically i just think it's kind of a tonal thought yeah and it's interesting because like if you follow sort of the history of like western 
thought, philosophy, and literature, like, the two great sort of intellectual camps um, very much are, you know, have their, have their main tents pitched in Athens and in Jerusalem, right? That's the classical mm-hmm. sort of yeah. studying. You know, if you were to st- go into um, a great books program or you know uh any kind of any kind of program engaged with the history of western thought or or literature um you know you have in in many ways it's it's a dialogue and in some ways it's a war between uh the descendants of greek philosophy and the descendants mm-hmm. of christian theology um right you know and and you know it's i mean it's a whole it's a whole uh set of things there since there's been uh, a lot of the church fathers in order to lend credibility to Christianity because in the ancient world, you know, something being new was a bad thing. Uh, you wanted to connect mm-hmm. whatever thing you wanted to say, you wanted to kind of imply that it was always true, that it had always been, been true. And so some of the early church fathers, their project was to basically take Greek philosophy, the, the biggest, you know, um, sort of the, the cornerstone of that of the Roman Empire and and the the Hellenistic world, and basically find ways that it was Christian all along, essentially. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and then and then later, you know, some of the reformers, even Martin Luther, to some extent, you know, said that the Catholic Church went too far in that direction, and you know, attributed a lot of what they saw as heresy or or systemic problems to uh becoming too comfortable with the greeks and you know all of that so it's interesting that like those two things are both braided together in this book mm-hmm. um for sure and as a disclaimer like you know obioma is is born in nigeria this is a you know yeah. no- novel that um has a lot to do with nigeria and the thing i'm afraid of as i say all these things is that there's like a lot of African literary influence, influences or even philosophical influences that like I'm completely missing and are much closer to, you know, the, the root of this, of this novel. Um, mm-hmm. And that could be, that very well could be possible. And it's just something that's super not in my area of expertise um, in even, you know, in any way, um, you know, that said, uh, Obioma, I think, I believe lived in England, lived in and taught and wrote in England oh. for a while. And I know, according to the you know biography on this book, he's he's teaching literature and writing at the University of Nebraska. I don't know how current that information is, but my point is that like he's certainly you know in a in a Western milieu in a Western context. So I mm-hmm. have and and as you know smart as he is and as good a writer as he is. I have to assume that he would be aware of, um, you know, like how, how this would be taken in an English language, uh, yeah. By an English speaking audience, you know, I, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm, I'm aware that there might be some African influences going on. I just am choosing to focus on the things I actually know anything about and not, you know, look any any more foolish than I ever do on this show. Yeah. 
Well, it, it falls again into that that role of you know we we give the author credit, right? <laughs> yes, um, for for having the thought. Um, it, well, and it, a lot of it is is tied into things that, like you say, we you and I really don't have a lot of um, expertise in, and that's the the Nigerian factor to it, right? The the Nigerian myths and. Um, folk tales and things like that that uh, are certainly woven in as well. Um, he makes reference to some and explains some, like with the spiders, right? Um, which is an interesting idea. Um, but I'm sure there's a lot that we're not getting yeah. to. I guess this especially occurred to me at this moment because, you know, what African folk tales I do know often are, you know, have a lot to do with talking animals and anthropomorphized animals. Animals, yeah. Um, you know, I certainly would not want to reduce it to just being that, but no. like, uh, But it's a feature. Yeah, it's a feature, so common. It just feels like there could there could easily be something in this aspect that that we're missing. Mm-hmm. But that said, yeah. I mean, now that you pointed out the whole the meta, the Ovid references seem again very uh um uh seem very prominent seem almost obvious yeah uh even though well and all the metamorphoses that occur in ovid where someone is turned into an animal or or a plant um or a geographic feature um (laughs) they're all um either a punishment or rescue right really um I guess I can't think of any other reason for a metamorphosis happening. As it's either a punishment or a rescue from the gods right. that's being given. Right, right. Um, and so in this, I don't know. I I, I don't want to go through and delineate. Well, so and so is being punished. So and so is being rescued. And um, but it seems like all that punishments and rescues are both feature very heavily. And mm-hmm. like in Ovid, you know. The same thing may be a punishment for one person and a rescue for another. Um, right. You know, whether Benjamin is, is certainly punished by going to jail, but, you know, he participated in the in the death of a prophet and he didn't die. So, you know, could it be that, that mm-hmm. that's, a, in a sense, a rescue from a worse fate? You know, that, that kind of thing. And I, I I'm... I'm I am not as read up on my Ovid as I should be, but I feel like at least some of the... It's one I've been meaning to revisit. But... Yeah. Um, I feel like at least some of the, uh, the you know, metamorphoses in that could be both a punishment and a rescue, depending on mm-hmm. your perspective. Is, um, is uh, Cupid and Psyche, is that in Ovid? No, I don't think okay. that is. Because it, it, it was just occurring to me that, like, you know the three tasks that that psyche is is set could seem like a punishment but they end up being a rescue you know mm-hmm. but um yeah i'm sure there are examples that are actually in Ovid that are much better um if, if unless you had anything you wanted to say about that uh i just want to point out not specifically something i no. something i noticed that i you know might be tied in here um and in fact, might have to do with, uh, you know, me me disclaiming knowing uh, as much as I should about Nigerian, you know, culture and, and literature. Mm. Um, 
only, I want to say it's a couple or a few of these chapters have, uh, is it an epigraph still if it's at the beginning of a chapter? Or is there a different term? Sure. Okay. Um, have what Michael assures me is called an epigraph, uh, where you have a quote at the beginning of the chapter. No, I didn't assure you. I, uh, I assured you. All right. Uh, moving right along. Um, <laughs> so, uh, one of the few chapters that doesn't begin with a uh, animal... Assured epigraph. Um, does begin <laughs> oh, okay. with a with a short epigraph. Uh that's chapter six, the Madman. It's page eighty nine mm-hmm. in our edition. Um, and if you weren't going to talk about it, I okay. was. Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, so I'm I'm particularly set up to to have caught this now as as I'm discussing um, because between my reading of the Fisherman and uh, this discussion, I began reading uh, War and Peace uh, by by Tolstoy, um, and. Uh, in my, in my reading session, literally last night, uh, I think it's just Tolstoy, like the narrator of the book, um, quotes Euripides as saying, uh, those that the God, or he, he puts it in, in, um, God in the singular. So those that God wishes to destroy, he first drives mad. Mm -hmm. And, uh, the narrator of War and Peace attributes that to Euripides, that line, um, and very similarly, probably identically, depending on your translation from the Greek, um, at, at the epigraph of chapter 6 is, those the gods have chosen to destroy, they inflict with madness. However, Obioma um, gives the source of this as an Igbo proverb. Uh, Igbo, mm-hmm. of course, being the, the uh, um, group that I... The language of, or, yeah, the 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 language and culture that I think both Obioma and the the family are um, from. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's you know maybe that's even what maybe a subconscious memory of that is what inspired me to say like there's there are things that uh, you know to us look like they're from Western culture um, you know and they and they mm-hmm. may be. But they may also have um, direct correlations in Igbo culture or in other, you know, African cultures as well. Um, I I, w- I want to say something about this, and and part of what I'm going to say is to uh, relate a, a personal connection um, that I'm going to impose upon this as though it's the all reality for it, um, for the sake of the funny. Um, right. Nothing wrong with the grammar in that sentence. Please continue. <laughs> <laughs> um, but okay, so yes, it, it is not only in uh, War and Peace, but elsewhere. I think Longfellow um, cites this as well and attributes it to Euripides. Um, but it's, it, I think it's been actually proven it's not Euripides. Oh. It is Greek, okay. but not Euripides. Um, but it's interesting that uh, Obioma makes it Igbo. Right. Um, and I mean, you know, we have no reason to not believe that it's a case of simultaneous no. invention. Sure. Um, my first encounter with this proverb actually comes via Star Trek. Uh, <laughs> there's an episode called Whom Gods Destroy, named oh. for this proverb, and it takes place in um, uh, an asylum planet uh, <laughs> where the main antagonist is a madman. Sure. Um, 
so that's okay. And and further, that Madman has um, uh, acquired the ability to metamorphose himself. Oh, interesting. Uh, and transform uh, into other uh, humanoids, basically. But um, sure. um, still, that transformation is is in there. But hey, I think that's an interesting connection. It is, um, yeah. And so I'm going to choose to believe that Obioma has taken this proverb specifically because of the Star Trek connection, also because of the character of Chekhov, uh, who, since his first appearance in Star Trek, was known for making a specific form of joke, um, which is whenever someone would make a reference, an allusion to something, and they would say, um, oh, yeah, you know this this thing, this well-known, um, you know, whatever grain, if it's in the trouble with tribbles, um, Chekhov would say, oh, yeah, it's a Russian invention. Or, yeah, that's a Russian story. You know, the Russian, the, the famous Russian fairy tale Cinderella. Um, you know, everything, sure. it's it's all Russian. And so Obioma is doing the same thing here with this phrase saying, yeah, it's Igbo, you know. Sure. Um, <laughs> um, so I, that's, I, I don't know if that's actually, actually the case. I don't think it is. But I was going to say that I would like to emphasize, sort of like talking about legal advice, in uh in <laughs> previous uh forget if that was last episode um but i would like to emphasize that this is michael's interpretation um <laughs> and that any angry tweets angry emails angry whatever uh that you have to uh write to him should be directed to him and uh leave me out of it uh <laughs> Yeah, I think that's I think that's uh, my my entire second disclaimer. All right, you, you need those disclaimers once in a while. Yeah, especially when um, you have a loose cannon like you at the helm of the ship. How's that for a mix? What am I gonna do next? How's that for a mixed metaphor? Yeah, loose well, cannon at the helm of the ship. You never know what you're gonna get from the locusts. Um, how's that for my um, morning DJ? vibe the morning DJ i would probably listen my, to uh, horror show if if that was like <laughs> if if you really went with that like a hissing i'm the locusts menacing yeah like that exact sound if you turn that into a morning dj personality i would probably listen to that <laughs> oh hang on i gotta write something quick <laughs> um no okay yeah that's that 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 that's the only spot where I noticed anything like that sure. at, at the heading of chapter six. Um, this Igbo proverb that's often wrongly attributed to Euripides, but is also apparently Greek. Um, I, I don't know if it's anywhere else in in the book if he does any more of that. Um, but he does make other allusions to other books. Um, so I, I was already primed for this. We talked about the back flap uh, of the book. Uh, last episode, but one of them, in, uh, one of the quotes uh, on the back cover is uh, Chigozi Obioma truly is the heir to Chinua Achebe right. by Fiametta Rocco. So uh, Chinua Achebe uh, of uh, Things Fall Apart fame. Yes, another um, Nigerian novelist. Right, which I was totally prepared to discount and be like, you're just lumping Nigerian right. novelists together. Um 
but then he literally references things right. fall apart in the novel. I'm like, you stop! You did this to yourself. <laughs> it's, <laughs> but it's it's totally fair. Um, yeah, that uh, both that that quote, that little quote on the back, and the inclusion of things fall apart in the novel, both are totally fair. Um, um yeah, and it, it's interesting, like. I was kind of hesitating about whether I wanted to bring up the allusion to things fall apart because first of all, I I'm, you know, 33 years old now. I've read things fall apart when I was 20, which means it's been 13 mm-hmm. years and I was a much worse reader at that time. Um, yes, same. So I don't have a whole ton of insight to give as far as like, you know, comparing the two. Um, but the one, and, and this is why I hesitated, because I don't want to seem like I'm doing the thing that I am doing, which is, like, finding white people in this novel. Um, because, uh, you know, Things Fall Apart is is a very, uh, sort of slots right into the idea of post-colonialism. This is, you know, uh, Africans, Nigerians dealing with um, the aftermath of rule by colonial white people and um excuse me um mm-hmm. the uh you know the action of that novel and the and the tragic conclusion of that novel is driven directly by um that i feel like the only white people in this novel are the white folks in things fall apart that's the only time that like as far as yes. I can tell, that white folks are mentioned directly in this book. And, like, you know, the, I don't want it to seem like I'm setting up a, a, you know, dichotomy where it's, like, the focus is on white people and whether they're mentioned or not. But I think it's interesting that um, this novel, which deals, you know, in its allusions and its, uh, um, you know... I mean, some mm-hmm. of just the central stuff about it deals with certainly the legacy of missionary colonialism, um, mm-hmm. as well as, you know, the, the background, mm. the father, the everything about the father is sort of, you know, if, if you wanted to try to draw the things fall apart analogy, you could probably draw it through the line of capitalism and yes. the idea that, um, you know, in a way... A reading, in a way, this is a novel about the absence of a father, and the father mm-hmm. is absent because of this this sort of world that that white people sort of imposed on on these folks. I don't sure. know how, and and I I guess I really don't want to emphasize that too much because I think mm. it's there, but I don't think certainly the way that I'm talking about it is like really any kind of a main point or a central point or anything yeah. like that. Well, so I. I... Okay, so white people <laughs> in the book, I think you're totally right that they're only in Things Fall Apart. Um, the the cl- next closest thing I think there is is actually through the father as well, and it's that looming hope of Canada. Oh, right. Yes, there is. Um, which is, you know, to take this whole biblical illusion <laughs> sort of thing or pseudo allegory canada is pretty much depicted like heaven like that's where we want to go oh, see i thought you were gonna um, say the promised land sure, yeah absolutely that too go is not necessarily that different 
No, it, yeah, it, it's it's essentially the same thing. Um, yeah. The the thing is, they never get there. Right. Um, and in fact, if you take this, uh, like the 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 leaping Christ figures through the the book and and connect it to Obembe by the end when he returns um, to you know rejoin with Benjamin, where has he been? He's been in Africa, right? <laughs> um, right. So in his ascension his departure he didn't go to canada right he went to africa um so that's um just another part of africa um but that's yeah uh i don't know um i don't know if there's much more i wanted to say about that i just think it's kind of an interesting yeah feature yeah i i do want to touch on the the aspect you you mentioned like the missionary colonialism sort of thing i i want to make sure that we talk about this this is one of the things that was just sticking in my brain from the beginning and it it didn't go away all the way through to the end and that's before the actual text of the book i want to look at the map oh okay (laughs) um and and, and just talk about the the map a little bit it comes right after the epigraph to the book which we can talk about that too i guess but um i want to look at this map of a akuri akure your guess is um, as good as mine the name of the village which is actually um where obioma is from yes um so that's like which which is another feature of this that this map looks if it isn't actually it looks hand drawn right um as though it's drawn from memory as like these and even drawn by a child. Yeah. I was going to say by a child potentially. Like these are the important things. Like if I were a kid and I were drawing a map for my parents to show where I was going to go to visit my friend at his house, this is close to what I would have drawn. Um, just, you know, different places and things, but there, there. So because of that feature that it's hand drawn and drawn, like, like a child, you would think like the most, significant points on this map are drawn and what really stands out are the the religious locations here Uh, you've got the assemblies of god church you've got the celestial church you've got the mosque pictured there um you you can find our house labeled but it's it's almost um swallowed up by the rest of the features of the map um the, the street that's labeled, the street that's drawn, the bridge that's close by, the Milo Cinema that's close there. All of those things really swallow up the house yeah. uh, there. And then all these other things um, that are all all around there. But the, the, the religious institutions are really prominently featured. Yeah. Um, and in the text of the book, too, the Assemblies of God Church <laughs> is the one that uh, the family goes to. Right. Um, and that's that's depicted on a number of occasions. The pastor of that church is a character who shows up. Um, the celestial church, likewise, there's a character from there. There's not a lot of detail though. Like we get some about the, they're almost cultish, right? Um, the way they're described. So I, I don't is, know too much more beyond. that. I believe that. Yeah. Well, at the beginning, some of the the action of like the uh, mm-hmm. um, the the them getting chased by the madman and some of that is like catalyzed or maybe I'm, maybe I'm 
No, maybe I'm wrong about that. Anyway, there's there's some stuff at the beginning where they get yelled at by one of the members of the Celestial Church and then yeah. like, throw stones at him. It's really close him. to that. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, in my yeah, in my mind, it's associated with the Madman, and I think textually that's probably intentional even if in in the world yeah in the world of the story they're not necessarily directly related but um Mm -hmm. also you know it's right across from their fishing spot so like that's right you know probably part of why in the lot if if you go with the idea that this is a child's map you know that that makes sense Mm -hmm. just because it's like a a reference for where the fishing spot is as well like it's right see it's something he interacted with um, and then, of course, and, and I want to come back go, no, go ahead. to that, yeah. too. But um, the mosque is the other one that shows yes. up. And I think I only caught one reference in the entire book to the mosque. And that's when there was a, 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 a bell for prayer, calling people to prayer. Um, I think it comes up two or three times, but it's mostly just okay. scenery. Like, it's mostly just flavoring. Yeah, um, and just it's, in the background. I don't think it's a bell. I think it's the muzine the the person who oh, would yeah, 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 stand yeah. up on the tower mm-hmm. and call like yeah i think it's used once mm-hmm. maybe he wakes up like too early and it's because the muzine called but it's like mm-hmm. you know it's kind of a a signifier of being miserable or being sleep sleepless because presumably he does this every day but yeah mm-hmm. it's it's it doesn't feature prominently i would say at least certainly you know, Islam as Islam certainly does not feature really at all. No, no. I'm I'm wondering. I'm not super familiar with Islam. I, I some, um, but I'm wondering how much uh, features or or influences the text of the book. Um, some of the. I, just like the the impression I get of the the Quran itself, um, and the the way the the, the various surahs are are like titled um, in their shorthand seems a little similar to how these chapters are titled. Sure. Um, I but I don't know if that's deliberate at yeah. all. I and that might be a t- just a total stretch. And well, the other uh, the only other thing that that occurs to me is that. Um, is that the surahs are a series of prophecies. They're all, you know, yeah. uh, Muhammad supposedly speaking with, you know, speaking the words of God. So, like, there's there could be that connection mm-hmm. in there. Um, again, both both from... It's purely speculative. Yeah, I was going to say, both from, from, from lack of my own knowledge and from how little it directly appears in the book, I'd be much more hesitant about... Mm-hmm drawing any of those connections like it seems like we're much yeah. more interested in christianity um You're right you know and, and the bible um but again i right. it, you know it could be one of those things where i'm super wrong about that and i just don't know enough that things are staring me mm-hmm. in the face that um you know that i just missed um yeah i the one thing i wanted totally to point be. out about the assemblies of god church when i mention you know oh uh, yes sort of missionary colonialism you know, I'm I'm fully aware that like there are African denominations and there are, you know, for example, mm. just the the Ethiopian Coptic Church among others that, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. d- weren't were not like had had no influence from European missionary culture or right. anything like that. Um, the reason I I suspect that s- some of the the post colonial like European missionary 
um, stuff is going on is specifically that I believe Assemblies of God is a denomination that starts in Europe, that starts in sort of the um, the Reformation era in Europe. I could be wrong about that. Uh, assembly uh, Assemblies of God is a 20th century uh, denomination. Sure, but like... I, it was started in Arkansas. Oh, okay, wow. <laughs> Um, I guess, I guess I was thinking in terms of ancestry, like you could trace that back okay, to yeah, sure. mm-hmm. some of the, uh, back to, yeah, like the radical reformation or some of that, but, um, but, right, e- but even right. more so with, with you saying that, right? Like, so this is, this mm-hmm. is very much, uh, um, you know, as much as, as the church in this book is a black church, there is that connection to, you know, potentially like missionary activity and and missionary colonialism again i don't know you know i i, I don't want to these are my thoughts they're not necessarily obioma's thoughts but i think that connection is sure. at least potentially there um because of that yeah yeah i think so too um yeah, I, I do want to say one more thing uh, in this connection with these uh, religious institutions that feature so prominently on the map. Part of what makes them so prominent is the uh, religious symbols uh, atop the buildings. So the Assemblies of God has a cross, the Celestial Church has a cross, the mosque has the moon, um, and those make it really stand out. But there's one other symbol that really stands out, and that is for that fishing spot that oh, you mentioned, which yes. has the symbol of a fish, sure. which historically has been... Uh, or was the first symbol of Christianity, right. uh, was the fish. And specifically, um, it was the symbol for the persecuted Christian church um, that marked the, the hidden seating, secret gatherings of Christians sure. um, when they were being uh, persecuted and, and killed by the, the Roman government, especially. Um and so I, th- I think that's absolutely deliberate in this map itself that, okay, you've got this church with the cross, you've got this other church with the cross, you've got this mosque with the moon on it, and here you've got this fishing spot that's subtly marked with the fish. Yeah. Um, that's their church. I-, I think there's some textual evidence for that, too. I'm not think- I-, I-, I couldn't find a specific um, reference well, to even, that either. But even the... the uh... um, they-, they-, they had this hymn that they, oh, they yes. wrote about, the-, the catching the fish, there's right? That. There's that. Um, there's so, also just the the bit I quoted, you know, last episode on oh, page yeah. the whole "Come and we will make you fishermen," and we followed. You know, that's mm-hmm. um, there. You in if you're if you're going with this this interpretation, like that's them leading him to the church or leading the the younger brother. You know, that's I'd say that's pretty good textual evidence. It's you know, yes. Yes. Um, yeah. And then, like, you get this this interesting turn, too, because when it starts out that, okay, they're fishermen, it's like, oh, er- everyone thinks that's fine. Or you put an American context on that and you think, you know, group of boys going out fishing, you know, that's, they're boys. That's right. what they're doing. They're going out fishing. But then you get this turn um, in this foreign American audience. Um, I, I don't know how... Uh, other audiences would read this. I, I'm I'm sure probably in Nigeria, readers would would anticipate right. this. Uh, but the river is a really disgusting right. place. It's um like why would you do right. this? These boys who are choosing to be fishermen, they are making themselves outcasts right. <laughs> by doing this. They're bringing shame on the family by right. doing this. And not um, only the it's a huge deal. Not only the disgust of the place, but also like the symbolic connections that um mm-hmm. are talked about i think in that is it the second chapter called the river yeah yep 
yeah. Uh, and actually, to be to uh, um, sort of harken back to the things, some of the things I was just saying, um, the 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 uh, whole religious thing is elaborated on even in um, the second paragraph of this chapter. Uh, mm. um, so the the uh, first half of this paragraph talks about. Uh, you know the the river was once pure, and then that's associated with um, uh, the the river is believed to be a god, which you know a lot of African uh, tribal mythology and folklore, uh, as well as other other you know areas of the world, mm. you, you would have rivers and and oceans and lakes literally as as gods, like they're one and the same. Yep. Um, so this river is a god. People worshipped it. They erected shrines in its name, um, and uh, use them to to uh, court uh, various like water based gods and mermaids and other spirits. Um, and then it says this changed when the colonialists came from Europe and introduced the Bible, mm-hmm. uh, which then prized Omi Allah's adherence from it. And the people, now largely Christians, began to see it as an evil place, a cradle besmeared. Um, mm-hmm. So that so not only just like the fact that the river is disgusting, but a lot of that that sort of uh, religious symbolism, you know, that's that's or religious and and. Uh, uh, cultural baggage that's attached to it. Um, which, you know, we talked, I think last episode about the idea that like, when you read the the first part of this book, you'd, you could see Ikenna as a Christ figure and that that just doesn't yeah. work as far as I, I think either of us could tell. Yeah. When I read this paragraph, what, where I thought we were going with it and the, the easy interpretation slash the easy place to go with it, um, would be like yeah. these boys go back to the river, and they rediscover something beautiful in it, and and are able to sort of cast mm-hmm. off because you've got this association between, you know, the the sort of pre-Christian religion and the purity of the river, which you know obviously sounds like an inverted sort of Garden of Eden story, um, mm-hmm. and then uh, uh, with colonialism, Christianity, you know, all of that polluting the river, like the the easy sort of way to go with it would be you know then these boys somehow purify the river they purify themselves in rediscovering their pre-christian roots and sort of throwing right. out colonialism like that's where i honestly assumed this was going once i read that paragraph and i would say absolutely you know m- maybe someone who's you know clever or a a better reader better informed about you know igbo culture someone like that maybe could um contradict me on this but like i don't think that interpretation works at all for the rest of this book no i don't see a way that no i don't think so at all um you know we've skirted this idea and i am not asking this question so do not answer it i forbid you from answering it um but the the question of whether this is a christian novel sure. um or not i do not do not answer that because that's not the point it, it i don't yeah. care um and i'm not asking it but like that 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 whole idea because you know with that that paragraph that you read um it's it's laden with um some uh heavy uh, i forget who the the um uh, communications theorist is who who thought up the idea of like god words and devil words 
Um, but like colonialists is right. a devil word, right? Um, especially in our culture right now. Um, you know, there's, there's a time that perhaps, you know, colonialist, great, you know, going out and building the colonies and all that, but you know, right now, no. Well, and especially from <laughs> um, the perspective and, of an and then, like, writer it's, and, you know, all of that. Yes, exactly. And, and that's highlighted as well by what you mentioned too, this pure thing is suddenly sure. corrupted. Um, so like you've got that, but then like colonialism itself is never really returned to it's mentioned in things fall yeah, the, apart the things fall apart um, in the references there is, is there, but other than that, it's and, not directly. No. And so it, it's, it, it's not forgotten, but it's, it, it's maybe left to the side and then it's like, okay, we, we understand that let's move beyond yeah. now. Let's, let's, let's explore other things. Yeah, maybe. I mean, um, the, so the, the like, thing that always gets said anytime you're discussing, like, post-colonial theory or anything related to that, you always have to ask the question of whether there's really such a thing as post-colonialism in the sense that any mm-hmm. culture that has been affected by colonialism, like, that will always be part of the culture. Even if you're rejecting it, even if you're trying to move past it, you know it's always there it's like a you know it's like a boogeyman boogeyman kind of thing you know yeah um Mm -hmm. so in a sense like if you're really determined to read this book that way like it's always available to you that way but um i certainly think there's a sense of like the this the interpretation that i posited um i i think there's a real sense that that's not the point and, and you're right, like, it mm-hmm. coming so early in the book, and it, it sort of being, you know, being right there mm-hmm. at the at the beginning, like, if you're a, if you're a decently fast reader, and you, you know, you, this, this is like a, this is like 10 minutes into you reading the book is, is where you get here. And I think that because of that, I, I think it lends a lot of credence to your idea that, like, we're acknowledging this, we're putting this there, but we're not going to that sort of very right. simplistic dwelling on well that. i don't you know dwelling on it is almost a separate question but it's not the simplistic like okay post-colonial fable that um you might be inclined to think it is yeah well and that that too like ties into the the river itself i that the this idea of colonialism is tied to the river and what it does to the river and so then what is the river for the rest of right. the book? Um, and it's, it really is a place right. of death. Um, the, it's, it's connected with that. It's, you know, again, with all these other stories, myths, legends that are tied in with this, this river is really close, I think, to the river Styx. Sure. Yeah. Um, uh, it, the, as the river of, of death, people cross the river in death they're they're found down along the river dead including abulu by the end um the the seeds of ikena's death come right out of the river um and include even a reference to um a river of red right (laughs) (laughs) which is um it different river but still the word river is is tied to death um yeah that's that's a connection right there 
Yeah. I, I, another thought occurred to me as we're looking at these chapter titles, hmm. um, because you get um, it kind of the fir- I think the first chapter that uh, starts out with you know these these things that um, each each chapter virtually starts with so and so was blank whatever the chapter title is um ikenna gets a number of those uh the first one is ikenna was a python i think yes um and then the next one is ikenna was undergoing a metamorphosis and i think the last one is ikenna was a sparrow sure um i i didn't trace these as diligently as i think i want to i want to go back and look at them all and see like the changes of them, but that's I, I think an interesting idea that you get Ikenna or Ikenna starting as a python, changing and becoming a sparrow. Sure. Which even in that chapter on him being a sparrow, the narrator says that he just learns that he was a sparrow, not that he became a right. sparrow, but he just realizes Ikenna was a sparrow. Right. Um Whereas maybe he thought before he was a python. Sure, sure, sure. Um, so the change is not necessarily a literal change, but um, a, a change in his perception right. of Ikenna. Which, yeah, I actually, like, um, now that we're, you know, this far into our last uh, discussion episode, the whole idea of perception could be yeah. an, another episode in itself, perception in this in this book. Absolutely. Um, not and the the idea of perception doesn't totally um, discount real change or or um, yeah, uh, like with with Ikenna too. You know, you've definitely got uh, the narrator Benjamin's perspective um, on Ikenna changing, sure. but it's. The, the way he talks about Ikenna is some of the most powerful stuff, I think, in this book, where you really just feel his heartbreak right. over the loss of his brother, who's described as the defender of his other brothers, right. and all of a sudden he becomes their enemy. Right. Um, and the rage that fills Ikenna against them is feels like a betrayal to the rest of the brothers. Right. Um, and so Boja, or... I don't Boja, Boja, I don't know. Um, it's not Spanish, yeah, not Boja. It's not Dutch either. Um, not Dutch either, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, that when, you know, he kills Ikenna, um, like you see his descent as well yeah. uh, into the reactionary rage. Right. Um, and... I don't know. There's there's a lot in here, which that, that again, like you say, we're nearing the end of our second hour of discussion on this book. But we could talk so much about trauma right. uh, in in this book and how that has affected these these children. Because uh, so you get Benjamin's perspective, and you could just take this. This is a child, right. but think of the trauma yeah. that this child has well, gone and the multiple through, traumas. and multiple multiple traumas yeah. and trauma physiologically changes your brain makeup um and so he is not just a child he is a child informed by trauma um that changes things yeah Yeah. um Um, the trauma of war the trauma of his death in the family the trauma of not having the father close by the trauma of 
prison by the right. end. Um, yeah, and I think that like, I think trauma of committing murder. <laughs> I, mean, I think if if uh, you were going to do a, a secret third, fourth, fifth episode about trauma, I do think the post colonial thing would come up again in that yes. because. Mm-hmm. If you if you wanted to read it, that's a national trauma. Yeah, well, and if you wanted to read it that way, um, you know, as a post-colonial novel, like that's again the the thing I always say about like what would the term paper be in in English grad school. Mm-hmm. Um, if you if you were making that argument, you would uh, it would be really easy to read the the generational trauma within this family. With it, you know, it, it passes from one brother to the next brother to the next brother. Um, as analogous to the generational trauma of, of colonialism, Mm -hmm. you know, the idea that, you know, these, the, the British have been out or the, the European powers have been out of Africa for, you know, 50 years, 60 years, 70 years, but like, Mm -hmm. there's still stuff, you know, that's, that's, uh, traumatizing multiple generations that's directly tied to that, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I do also think the war thing, as far as things that aren't mentioned, but might be huge, like you could also, and I, I, you know, you'd, I'd, I personally would have to do a little bit more or a lot more reading into Nigerian history, but like, you know, in the way that certain novels, like I've heard people say American psycho is a Vietnam war novel or, um, that, hmm. uh, The Catcher in the Rye is a World War II novel. Um, mm. y- I, you know, I think there's a reading available that would be pretty compelling about this, this novel being, uh, I think it's the Nigerian Civil War is what it's called. The, the war that's referred to sure. multiple times. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, like in, in the way that The Catcher in the Rye could be a, a war novel, like this could be a war novel, I think. Um, right. that's that's an interesting tie in there and i think there's a similarity between this and the catcher and the rye that could be an interesting you know maybe undergrad paper as well Um, oh yeah actually with child narrators and and trauma and so forth mm -hmm. right well and and part of it too is the 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 light at the end of i think both books is the hope of breaking the cycle Um, that, that's another thing about trauma is it's cyclical. And you mentioned that it's transferring from brother to brother to brother. And that, you know, comes down from their parents too. And theoretically would go down. Like we see it within the sibling dynamic here. And, um, Benjamin is kind of like right in the middle there. He sees all of his older brothers kind of just falling prey to this trauma. And he himself then finally falls into it. Um, but then with, uh, himself and Obembe, there's that hope right. because they both then return. Um, and so the hope is then for the younger two siblings, um, David and Nkem, I think. Nkem, yeah. Um, or Nkem. Um, and they seem, at least from his perspective, to be well adjusted by the time he re-meets right. them, you know, after his incarceration. Um and so that's that's kind of the hope is that like they'll get to live right. they'll they'll get to move on you, you know he has sacrificed himself um into this prison getting the word out uh so that it can all be clear and dealt with out in the open instead of internalized and damaging right. 
uh, for those who are coming after. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, you know, and some of the cyclical stuff goes back to what we talked about last episode about, y- yes, you know, this mm-hmm. potentially being Finnegan's Wake that just ends right. and then starts, starts again in the ending. Um, mm-hmm. Or one of those just cyclical folk tales. Right. Uh, folk tale cycle. The things. other, but the other thing about about that is like when I asked the question, "Are we all just animals?" One of the interpretations that had occurred to me of this book already was like mm. this idea that the religion is sort of a veneer, and you know maybe we are all just animals, and that sort of explains a lot of the oh, brutality okay. and the you know the. Uh, um, just the what seems like inhuman choices and and actions and so forth mm-hmm. um but that said like you know and and what what is interesting about that reading given some of the the stuff we've discussed this episode is then it becomes very deterministic it's like if we're all just animals then we're all just this is all we are we're all, we will always you know civilization and religion will always be a thin veneer um, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, uh, just kind of masks or papers over our inherent brutality. And like, part of the reason I asked that question is like, I don't like that interpretation. Um, no. And I think the text goes directly against that. Well, that's, that's part of, I want it. Basically I asked that question cause I wanted you to tell me that because yeah. you know, if, if this, if that's what the text is saying, then fine, that's fair. Like I want to know that, but sure. I re- I liked this book and I would rather it not be saying that essentially. Um I, so there's yeah, there's I, that, I think, but I I think you've yeah. kind of explained it to me really well in the sense that and I and I think that the determinism and like the Greek you know cuz with mm-hmm. the Ovid connections and so forth you yeah. could easily call this a Greek tragedy which are of course very deterministic sure. if you try to you know if if you're decreed to have a tragic end and you try to subvert the will of the gods you end up causing mm-hmm. the tragedy it's it's very it's very deterministic um but i i wonder if uh you know a lot of that is in there to sort of ask that question that you sort of implied like is this just an inevitable cycle are we just animals or can we break mm-hmm. the cycle and i think i think i right. i mean i like your interpretation that it's that it's you know the idea is that you can you can break the cycle maybe not as mm-hmm. neatly cleanly or you know with as little brutality as you'd like but that you know this isn't necessarily inevitable um mm. but i think that's maybe part of the ambiguity of the book is it trying to embody mm-hmm. that that question and the question sort yeah. of you know because it sort of does embody it both ways like in some ways all of the tragedies seem you know they almost seem inevitable like as soon as yeah. you know, as soon as we were halfway through the book, as soon as the older brother died, I said to myself, "Okay, they're gonna have to kill the prophet." Like I knew that yes. was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but it didn't. Yep. But it didn't seem like you know, in a mystery novel where the author doesn't do a good enough job at concealing things, it seemed like that's what I was supposed to think, and that there was never yep. supposed to be a secret there. Um, no, no. But then, yeah, I think yeah. the I think part of I mean, part of my counter interpretation to that would be. Yet, this does this kind of thing is an aberration. It does happen, but it's like mm-hmm. we do have civilization. You know, this is there, there's a reason that this is seen as extreme. Um, mm-hmm. But I think I like I think I like what you were what you said better about the idea that there are cycles and we do get stuck in them or caught in them, and 
have to suffer consequences, but maybe, you know, it is, it, it, if you look at it that way, they almost are generational Christ figures. Like the, the older brothers yes. almost are multiple Christ figures to kind of free their younger brothers. And I don't think that's the mm-hmm. only way to interpret this book, but I like it better than some of the ways that, that I had thought of, you know, uh, mm-hmm. on my first read through. Right. Well, and, and that's explicitly said, you know, by the second to last page where um, Benjamin goes willingly sure. into this testimony and his father is coaching him through it and saying, um, you will go like the man you were when you took up arms to avenge your brothers. Uh, you'll tell them how it all happened. You'll say it like you will say it all like the man I brought you up to be menacing juggernauts like remember like and then two paragraphs down like the fisherman you once were um so he he's going into it with this bravery with this deliberateness with that mission right um of being that fisherman right um it's it is that gospel right, right. it's it, it's it's a gospel out of trauma um, which I think is another connection to the animals that we haven't mentioned already that, you know, Benjamin mentions that he wanted to be a vet mm-hmm. right. one day. And right. so he's framing everything in terms of animals. Right. Um, that That's just his narrative flavor onto it, like, you know, the Gospel of Luke written right. by Luke the physician. Right. Um, there's the, the physician flavor to and, a lot of And then again, uh, you know, stuff. you could say that, like, humans are the only uh, uh-huh. creatures that, have vets yeah, right you know, so <laughs> right that's, that's in there as well yeah so yeah but yeah i don't know that's yeah the, the the ambiguity of it and the the fact that it's asking all these very big questions is key yeah i think yeah absolutely well, Ethan, we are uh, coming up right on the end uh, of our time for discussion for this book. And uh, this also uh, marks the end of the fourth episode in which we are dis- uh, drinking uh, the uh, Ben Riach the 12 Speyside Single Malt Scotch Whiskey Three Cask Matured. Um, and I, I hate to say it, Ethan, but nobody lost yeah, I, in these four episodes. You hate to say it, but you gotta say it. And, uh, but I gotta true. say it. And so that means that we've we've both lost. Um, we've we've both broken the rule that uh, someone must lose. Someone must break a rule. Um, which means we both need to get punished. Um, I, I have an idea for a a, a dual punishment, okay. Ethan. Uh, unless you had another idea. I mean, yourself. No, I'd I'd like to hear your dual punishment idea. Okay. I'm going to send you a message if I can remember how to do It's that. a little, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, there's a link for you. What I've sent you is uh, a famous section uh, of Ovid's Metamorphoses, uh, The Abduction of Europa. This is a translation by Daryl Hine uh, in free verse and uh in the past for our uh dual punishments we've done what we've called a shakespeare race and i am proposing that we do an ovid race I, with this poem I, <laughs> uh, I mean i'm displeased but i'm only displeased in the sense that any punishment should be displeasing 
Yeah, that's that's the point. Um, <laughs> no one should like exactly. it. Exactly. So, yeah, I'll uh, I will accept it, knowing that you know, I don't want to make you make up a punishment because <laughs> I'm sure you would just like make up something even worse. Oh yes, I I, I could make worse. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, I guess whenever you're ready. All right, I will count us down, <clears throat> and then we will um, read like the wind, bullseye. <laughs> I'm so mad at you right now. Uh, I know. <laughs> in three, two, one. Majesty, Majesty is incompatible truly with love. With they love. they cohabit nowhere together. The father and chief of the gods, whose right hand is armed with the triple forked lightning, who shakes the whole world with a nod, lay dignity down with his scepter, adopting the guise of a bull that makes with the cattle and load was he ambled around the field. Fresh fields, a beautiful animal colored like snow, this no footprint has trodden, and which no watery south wind has melted his muscular neck. Bulged dewlaps hung down from his chin, his curved horns, you might think, had been hand carved perfect, more purely translucent than pearl. His unthreatening brow and far from formidable eyes made his face appear tranquil. Agner's daughter was truly amazed that this beautiful bull did not seem to manifest any hostility, though he was gentle and she trembled at first to touch him, but soon she approached him, adorning his muzzle with flowers. Did I yeah, win? Absolutely. Did I win? Did I win? Like, I fell down <laughs> on the track, and then you lapped me and, like, stomped over my body? <laughs> Good. I just, Good. like... All we got was the description of Zeus as a bull. Yeah, I mean... Like... Do you really need any more? He's such a handsome exactly. bull. No, he's so handsome. Such a handsome bull. It's great. All right. Well, well I'd say that was fun. Ethan, it, you know, <laughs> it's not supposed to be. It was a punishment. Yep. Um, what would you rate this scotch, Ethan? Benriach the twelve, uh, on a scale of one to five stars. I'm gonna rate it a four mm. out of five. Um. Which is a good, a very good rating for me, um, especially considering like the main notes I would that I got out of the scotch were like green apple, which Ooh. is like a a note that I often much more often associate with Irish whiskey. Like I've heard that you know the green apple note is sort of the center of an Irish whiskey and often like sort of the thing that that others uh, build on. Um, we I think we had that in the like the green spot for example but sure um so we got green apple we got like honey uh definitely mm. I picked up let me taste it there's like definitely some tobacco mm-hmm. um as well as like chocolate like probably dark like I'm borderline between like a milk chocolate and a dark chocolate kind of taste and the thing about that is, like, a lot of those are very sweet um, mm-hmm. notes. And I'd say overall, especially as scotches go, it's quite a sweet scotch. Mm-hmm. But, and anyone who's ever heard me rate a scotch before knows that I want it to be smoky and I don't want it to be sweet. Mm-hmm. And in spite of the fact that this was sweet and not smoky, I really liked it a lot. Right? And I can only assume mm-hmm. that it, you know, is a the uh the master blender that we that we mentioned um oh rachel berry yeah i was gonna say it's not on the bottle it's on the uh it's on um, the bottle it's down at the very very bottom oh okay i was looking for it in the same place it was on the cardboard um Uh sleeve and it wasn't there so anyway yeah like i can only assume that's that skill on rachel berry's part 
Um, but mm-hmm. whatever the the case, I appreciated it a lot and thought it was yeah like I it's one of those ones where it's like it's that thing about you like being manipulated you just don't like knowing how and it's like <laughs> I don't know how she made me like the scotch but like I did like it quite like quite a bit like mm-hmm. there have been other scotches we've had <laughs> that are like sweeter and I've been like I wouldn't buy it but I'd drink it um sure this one I would buy again like easily mm-hmm. uh yeah so you know it's it, it it's four out of five because it doesn't have like the things i'm looking for and you know it's definitely a 12 year like um mm-hmm. it's got a lot of complexity but it doesn't quite have the the age that a that an older scotch literally would you know <laughs> literally um, <laughs> um but those are the only things i can find to say against mm-hmm. it um yeah i four out of five i I also I really liked this scotch. It, so here's here's kind of a, a solid description of what I think this tastes like. It's like if you took a leather belt and you glazed it with some orange peel and cherries and chocolate and nuts uh all stuck with some honey um just you know slather that honey on top of all that um and then you chew on it for a little while that's (laughs) that's this scotch (laughs) i don't yeah i don't disagree on that belt (laughs) as much as i and i do want to get away from the horrifying image you've constructed but um (laughs) like as, as much as i compared it to irish whiskey this is definitely a scotch and I think that's oh, part of what I sure. liked about it. Like, it doesn't not it doesn't have zero smoke, and it it has you know definitely yeah. some of that space side like leather, salt. I mean, I mentioned the tobacco, mm-hmm. yep. so like mm-hmm. there's definitely very distinctly scotchy elements. Um, you know, there's like yes. peated Irish whiskeys that are very good, but I can't imagine them tasting exactly like this. I think this is pretty mm-hmm. distinctly still you know scotch <laughs> um, right yeah but so yeah I, 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 um, I do like what you've said i don't necessarily like the image <laughs> you put in my mind to say it right that's that's how i like to to deliver things <laughs> um so with that i'm going to give it 4.5 stars nice. um i i think this is great and i want to go back and buy more i will say um and I sent you a self-righteous text message about this. But, yes, you did. <laughs> um, when I was buying my bottle, I uh, uh, I discovered that there... So this is called Ben Riach the Twelve, and there's a very similar, similarly packaged bottle um, called Ben Riach the Smoky Twelve. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can... When you're making something smoky, some scotches get really ham-handed with it and don't do it very well. But, like, if it's done with the skill that this scotch is crafted at, like... The Smoky 12 might be a five-star scotch for me. Like, what I really want to do is finish this bottle to have an excuse to go buy the the Smoky one. Yes. I, I want to try it. Um, yeah. Um, what about the book, Ethan? Buy, borrow, or forget about it for Chigozi Obioma's The Fisherman. Um, I'm going to rate this a buy, and... Mm. I believe, as far as I know, anyway, Obioma is is 
um, you know, alive and, and still writing. And uh, he has a few other books out and I do want to read them. I haven't yet. Um, you know, I'd like to see more from him, but I would, I feel like this is a book that I would rate a buy regardless of that. Um, mm. because I, I just feel like it's such, I think it's such a major book. I think it's like, it's one, you know, that if you, if you want sort of like a, a complete 21st century literature collection, you know, you're going to have it on the shelf alongside alongside war and peace and alongside you know mm. um maybe the underground railroad i i fully realize that war and peace is, no, is a 19th century novel but i'm saying like it belongs on the same shelf yeah like, right yes. you know and especially it being you know a a nigerian writer like a, a perspective that from uh um you know that that people like us uh you know may not have a uh, tended to encounter as much. Like, I think there are all kinds of reasons to, uh, to buy this book and just keep yes. it around. Um, yeah. I feel like I could have said that more eloquently, but I don't think I have anything else to, to say about it. I, it's great. I like everything you said. I also <laughs> rate it a buy. Um, again, he's living support this living author. Um, but the, this warrants so many rereads, I think. There are so many layers to it yeah. uh, and so many big questions that it's asking and, and just inviting you to, to talk about. Um, it hurts. This book, like, yeah. this book is painful. Um, yeah. So it's I'm not... going to space out my rereading, but... <laughs> yeah. Um, it's not a... It's not, you know, The Devil in the Dark Water was like... Right. It, it it certainly brought up some things, but it it's very much a a uh, fun read. I thought. Sure, um, sure. Your brother, they're, your they're... brother might somewhat disagree with me, but <laughs> you know, this is this is a very different order of of read, and so it's, yeah, it's not to be taken on lightly. It's it's not so much fun to read; it's my duty to read it, and I will go to it willingly to break this cycle. <laughs> 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 there you go. Uh, I like that, and I hate that in equal measure. That's what I was going for. I figured. Um, yep. <laughs> what What about the pairing, Ethan? Perfect match, pretty good match, slight mismatch, total mismatch for the um, book and the scotch. I'm gonna say slight mismatch because uh, the scotch is very nice. The scotch is like, and it, and it it's nice in like in that way that you describe a friend as nice when that's not actually an adequate word for it. But it's like this is a very pleasant scotch. It's a scotch you could hang out with and talk to for hours. It's a scotch that will make you sort of feel good about yourself and about like choosing to hang out with it. And that's all mm. basically sort of the opposite of. Um, if the fisherman were a person, like you know, like you said, this <laughs> this book hurts. It's it's painful. It's not mean in the sense that I don't think you know. Unlike certain other authors who go for sort of the shock value, I don't think Obiami Obi Obioma, excuse me, I don't think he wrote it to hurt anyone. But um, mm-hmm. the the book in the Scotch, the only way, and the reason I say slight instead of total mismatch is like they're both very complex they're both very um 
intricate and and you know have a lot of layers but to to be an appropriate uh scotch for this book i think we would have needed something a lot meaner mm-hmm. how about you michael uh, i wish almost See, I, I'm vacillating between pretty good match and sli- slight mismatch because I, I wish there were an okay match category, <laughs> but there's not. And I can't rate it that way, Ethan, so I can't. I'm not yeah, going to do it. I'm not going to rate it that way. I have to follow the rules. I have to rate it either pretty good match or slight mismatch. Um, I'm I'm going to go on the other side of this um, invisible fence of the okay match rating. Uh-huh from you and say pretty good match okay the only reason i'm going to say that is i i I don't disagree with any of your reasons i think my conclusion is the only place where i differ and that is simply because i think they offset each other just enough okay um in when when i'm when I'm in the trenches of the fishermen, I need the comfort of a letter from home or uh, a, a show put on by the, the, the beautiful dancing women um, who sing and, and cheer up the, the troops. And and that's Ben React from not okay. I I don't want to say that what I just said because it's a female master blender, um, <laughs> and the only female master blender. That's not what I'm saying. So I'm taking that back. That whole metaphor, it's just comforting sure. as opposed to the pain of the book. Sure, and they offset each other. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> I yeah, I like that. Uh. You gave yourself the crap I was going to give you about that whole metaphor. I realized I it halfway think, through what I was saying. I actually didn't think of the connection with the uh, the Master Blender, but um, yeah. Uh, uh, well, you know, if we don't incriminate ourselves one way, we'll do it another way. Always, because we're talking. We're you know, exactly. we should just be quiet. <laughs> this should be an hour of silence, and we will not incriminate ourselves. <laughs> we will release that episode uh, one day. An episode of silence, yes. We we have to sit in front of our microphones, and then our wives will be on the recording, like, getting increasingly weirded out by why we won't respond to them. <laughs> but it'll be a metaphor or something. Uh, yeah, there's something. Yeah. It'll be significant. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, this uh, concludes our discussion of the fishermen. Uh, next time, Ethan, we are going to be jumping into our next manga book. Uh, yes, we are. Over this summer of 2022. Uh, would you like to share what our next manga book is, Ethan? Our next manga book will be one of my favorite books of all time, and that is Gargantua and Pantagruel by Francois Rabelais. Mm-hmm. Um now, Michael is reading the Thomas Urquhart translation. Mm-hmm. Urquhart and another person completed the translation. Um, Peter Mateau. Thank you. This is an old translation. It's, like, I think the first major English translation. 
Um, I am reading the M.A. Screech translation, which is actually much longer, or a fair amount longer anyway, um, partly because of all of Screech's introductions and, and footnotes, also because he includes some other material that's um, maybe wasn't even available to people like Urquhart. So, but I think you could probably read any translation and benefit, but um, just wanted to be mm-hmm. specific in case anyone is uh, reading along. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I have a lot more I could say, but we'll save it for the uh, sure. for the episodes. That's great. Um, so yeah, read along with us, uh, gentle listener. We'll be releasing four episodes of our discussion of Gargantua and Pantagruel. Uh, by Francois Rabelais. Uh, you can find us on tapestryradio.org. Go to the contact section. Put Scotch Talk in the subject line there uh, to submit your feedback. Uh, also, go to Twitter. You can find us at Room with Scotch. Or go to Facebook. You can join the Tapestry Radio Tap House as long as you are not an animal. Uh, and we'll let you in. Uh, if you go to tapestryradio.org slash scotchcast, that's the website for this podcast, right up at the top there is a homework submission form. Fill that form out with your English homework, and we'll do it for you, and it'll be fun, and great, and wonderful. You can turn it in and go to plagiarism jail for the greater good. Um... Also, if you like this show, uh, you can check out the other shows on the Tapestry Radio Network, like Intermission, the Backstage Drama Podcast, Us Play Fiasco, the actual Play Fiasco <laughs> RPG Improv Podcast, Freddy Goes to a Podcast where three grown men talk about the Freddy the Book, uh, Freddy the Pig Kids Book series, uh, and Pokemon Rollout, the Pokemon Tabletop United Actual Play RPG Podcast. Ethan, where are you? Um, I'm on Twitter at Bjartlett. That's at B-J-A-R-T-L-E-T-T. That's all. I'm on Twitter at M-G-L-I-L-I-E-N-T-H-A-L. And until next time, gentle listener, just remember, it's our party and we'll cry if Dr. Rachel Berry makes us. (laughs) But she won't. But she won't. She's too nice. Obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.